Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Professor Missy Cummings of the Pratt School of Engineering, Duke University, about the significance of the human element in cybersecurity. Professor Cummings is a renowned authority in human technology interactions. In October, 2021, the Biden administration named Cummings as a new senior advisor for safety at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. A Naval officer and military pilot from 1988 to 1999, Missy was one of the Navy's first female fighter pilots. She is an incredibly gifted and accomplished academic. It's truly an honor to have her as a guest on the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Show. Missy, welcome. Thanks for making time. I'd like to get started by asking, how does your work on human safety in automation and robotics inform cybersecurity research? Well, first, let me say thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And as a researcher, I'm relatively new to conducting research in this field, but it really came about because of the work that I've been doing in human interaction with autonomous systems. And I would say the the real point of my entry was as we were starting to, in my lab, we were starting to evaluate how much humans air in the construction of artificial intelligence and how human subjectivity can cause problems in the design of AI. I think that one of the natural kind of gotcha points there was then the influence of humans um, who are designing these technologies and then cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And so I just naturally ended up going down that path because there are so many problems with vulnerabilities and artificial intelligence. And it's still such a nascent field. People don't even understand how and where the vulnerabilities are when we create AI. Then then I got fascinated as I started to dip my toes in the water, I started to think about deception. And because that's fundamentally what cybersecurity is. And social engineering, as you and your audience well know, is the number one threat axis that people, companies face in cybersecurity attacks. And so I started uh, really getting fascinated by, we spend so much time trying to prevent deception. What if we could get inside the heads of people to 
maybe predict how, when, why people deceive and start thinking about it from the other end. And so I have some research underway with various uh, other collaborators where we're thinking about how to model deception kind of proactively because, you know, I, you want to keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, right? So, uh, yeah. And so if we can figure out how to get in the minds of the people who are doing the deceiving, the hacking, that is another way to mitigate cybersecurity attacks. Great. Uh, welcome to the field. I'm delighted to um, have you as a colleague in this area. Uh, you know, as you know, and as you alluded to this, uh, cybersecurity has to be approached um, multidimensionally. There's a technical side to it. There is a very strong human side to it. There's an organizational side to it. So when you speak about the human factor, when you talk about uh, deception, trying to understand deception, it also brings to mind um, what motivates people. Uh, and I say, say that from the standpoint of cybersecurity training. As you know, uh, we, we, we all get trained uniformly, consistently. But when it comes to applying the, the, what we've learned, the implementation of that varies from person to person for a variety of reasons, some of which relates to behavioral traits. Is that something that you can relate to and speak about a little more about the importance of the human factor from the standpoint of cybersecurity training? Well, first, I would just tell the audience, and I'm not sure if you can make these documents available, but I'd be happy to give everybody my syllabus from the class that I just finished teaching called the human element in cybersecurity, because it really speaks to that. What are all the core fundamental first principles to cybersecurity, human behavior, uh, and even some systems engineering. And I will tell you, I would kind of argue first with your assumption that uh, we're all sort of uniformly trained. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I mean, I'm kind of laughing, holding my stomach. Oh my gosh. The one thing that I really started to uncover when I was developing this class on um, humans and cybersecurity is uh, it is just amazing to me how uneven the training space is that out there. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of truth to the fact that maybe big companies take cybersecurity more seriously because they're bigger targets. And thus, maybe they have better cybersecurity practices. Maybe I say maybe because we see big companies all the time really get in a bind because they have very sloppy cybersecurity practices. And so one of the things that I think is a very interesting Venn diagram for the way companies think about cybersecurity is they think about it last kind of if at all. And that is also the same problem that just basic human factors consideration has in the design of any product, right? So uh, if we design a technology with autonomy, maybe if at all, we consider the human and it's the same thing for cybersecurity. And so then there's that shared Venn diagram, which means that if it's a human security issue, cybersecurity issue, then you're definitely not going to get it funded, right? Companies don't want to spend the money or the time and the effort. And, and yes, it takes time and effort. And I'm a big fan of having the U.S. government start to put in at least requirements for companies that work with them. 
right? I, as, a, as a veteran and a, uh, and a person who works with the government, my identity is constantly stolen through the government, uh, you know, through every kind of breach that the government has, my ID is stolen. So I would like to close that gap, but it is difficult for private companies, you know, if you don't mandate it, and it's funny because there is there is kind of a shared similar argument over vaccines, you know, like we're all at risk when a company refuses to embrace at least standard cybersecurity practices. We're not asking them to go one above. So I do think that this the problem that we're having in this country and in other countries is really still a, one of the more core issues of what do companies really value? They say in the boardroom that they value that they value ESG and cybersecurity. I'm afraid this is still really at the lip service level as opposed to actually being real. Absolutely. You've covered a lot of ground. Let's see if I can follow up on some of the things that you were talking about. When I mentioned about standardized cybersecurity training, I was uh, referring to Let's say a company hires an organization to train their employees in detecting or preventing phishing attacks. Let's say a group of 10 people get trained. Research finds that subsequent to training, some of them perform better on the phishing tests than others. And uh, they have associated the difference in the results to human curiosity, perception of potential personal losses, and other factors. So I was coming at it from that perspective, that irrespective of the quality of training imparted, effective assimilation depends on factors such as innate curiosity, greed, perception of potential loss, and more. Anyhow, switching gears a bit, you mentioned about your class, and I was reviewing your learning objectives. And one of them that got my attention is about analyzing and measuring unintentional human errors and malicious behavior. Just curious, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about measuring that? Well, for unintentional behaviors, you know, it's it's actually in our wheelhouse uh, of everyday ways to measure human performance. You can measure, and I'm sure most companies who are very proactive do this, you know, whether or not people click on phishing emails, the kinds of behaviors. Uh, I, I recently had my students conduct analysis of email patterns, uh, you can actually take someone's email and understand just by the logs of the email of when they're opened, how long they're opened, uh, how much people interact with the email, whether they're just reading them or writing them, you can actually get a very good model of a person's workload over time. And indeed, you know, we do see phishing attacks success on basically at two different times. Number one, when people are super busy and they don't take the time to read an email or the kind of the, the counter to that is when people are really bored and there's an email that comes in that's just interesting enough 
to make somebody want to click that attachment or click the link. And so uh, if, if you can actually develop a good model of a human's engagement in their everyday work practices, you can actually figure out when is the right time to deceive them. And, you know, one of the problems with working, doing work in this space is I have my students develop these models or I have them develop plans for how, how to, how to hack. And then, you know, we don't, we can't actually do them, you know, for ethical purposes. I mean, I keep telling my students over and over, you know, these are, you know, we're just here for a learning engagement. And then I had a student, they all had a final project where they had to go uh, figure out some kind of project related cybersecurity and they could propose their own. And I had one student propose that, that he would go on to GitHub and find out where everyone was vulnerable in how they're using GitHub. And I thought that was good from just a, you know, let's just do a descriptive analysis. But then later I found out he was going in and trying to hack people through GitHub and say, look, I was just doing, I mean, no, 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 no. You know, I think that's a, that is kind of the interesting thing. First of all, if you're on GitHub, be careful because my student knows how to go in and hack you. Uh, but it, it, it's just, it's so easy to do. And there's so many points of access now that I think that that line between what is, what is just trying to do good research or you know trying to prevent and learn more about hacking. I do wonder sometimes, did I actually create some hackers in my class? I don't know. And, and, and it's funny because uh, you mentioned about students uh, going into GitHub and trying to figure out how to hack. And many of them are technically inclined. They'll figure it out. In fact, lots of information out there for that. That brings up a very fundamental question that's very core to my heart. And that is, as you know, uh, when organizations get breached uh, and when it's a phishing attack, the person or the group of people who are compromised, they are not the cybersecurity experts. They are not the ones who are technically very savvy. At least that's the information that's publicly available. Given that perspective, as educators, what's your opinion on how widespread cybersecurity education should be? Who all should we be reaching out to as educators, as trainers? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, it, I think it's a great question because companies are going to say, well, you know, we're going to get a, we're going to give everybody training, cybersecurity training on how to, how not to click on that link. And a lot of companies will want to be a one and done, right? I'm just going to give one training session and be done. Unfortunately, cybersecurity follows uh, what I would consider safety critical event models, which means that uh, you can think of airlines and uh, you know just aviation in general. Uh, there'll be an accident, and then right after the accident, everyone is super safe. And so you could, if you think about it, it's you know there's a sharp uptick in safety. And then there's this degradation time period over time, and then everybody gets unsafe again, and then there's an accident and it spikes up again. And indeed, that's exactly what happens in cybersecurity. So where, we're, you know, there'll be a breach, 
from one company that a bunch of ever, all the other companies will do a one and done, and then they'll forget about cybersecurity training. And then there's another breach. And so we just keep that cycle. What we need to be is more proactive about what would the, what would that look like? Could you be more proactive in predicting what that time cycle is? And I think the other problem is we need to do it it is difficult because the threat vectors are changing so radically. For example, COVID just introduced an entirely new area of cybersecurity. So I think companies need to not be so predictable in the way that they respond and understand that 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 it, cybersecurity is a living process. It's not just a check in the box. Now, I also appreciate how hard it is to keep everybody engaged. In my class, we ended up analyzing uh, various different companies' training programs, and you know, it's easy to get stale. And so, how to keep that tech? How to keep their training programs fresh and people engaged. Uh, I, it's just like all training for anything to do with safety. It's hard to keep people engaged until some bad event happens. But I think if you have a very clever chief risk officer, and that's another big issue that I don't see enough companies working on is, you know, we want to have a CTO and a CFO, but, you know, only the big companies think that they can afford to have a chief risk officer. And, and, and indeed, you know, all these companies that have paid out all these ransoms, you know, I, I wonder how that would have worked for them if they would have put the chief risk officer in place. Uh, you're, you're so spot on. In fact, risk factor or assessment of risk should be uh, integral uh, towards evaluating every initiative that a company is planning to pursue. And when I say every initiative, I'm talking about strategic initiatives, and there are lots of frameworks out there that guide organizations to do so. It's a question is who's following to what extent? And um, you kind of talked about this reactive mindset, this reactive mentality. And, you know, I think it's easier said than done that we should be proactive. We all should be proactive. But the reality of it is most of us we respond to fear, we respond to incidents. When it happens to us, we sit up and uh, try to do things to take corrective action. But when it's not happening to us and when everything seems to be going fine, it's like a company not experiencing any attacks. They tend to ignore the good work that's probably happening behind the scenes thanks to their uh, cybersecurity team and others. So it's a, it's a chicken and an egg problem. But definitely uh, being proactive is critical um, and the importance of top management actively engaging. You mentioned about how serious top management is, is often hard to gauge. And I don't know if that has anything to do with the consequences of the attacks. There are some large companies out there who have been attacked and as per public records, they have taken um, action so that those attacks don't happen or they reduce those risks, but they're not going away. It's not like their future is at stake. It's the medium-sized businesses that tend to go away. 60% of the medium-sized businesses that have been hacked have gone under, if my stats are correct here. So I worry more about the organizations which are resource-constrained and to what extent they are making those fearless calls of 
finding the right balance between pursuing their organizational goals and mission without compromising on having a certain level of cybersecurity readiness. Any reactions, thoughts to that? Oh, sure. Uh, so I have my students tell me at the end of every class what they would do if they were a hacker and what would they do if they were a chief risk officer and they had learned what they learned during whatever that particular lecture is. And one common theme that happened repeatedly after the various lectures were that I would hack a startup company for problem, you know, thing X, right? Because startups are really trying hard to make a product, make a splash, get more series funding. And indeed, just like trying to plan for human interaction issues, cybersecurity is again seen as, oh, well, this is a nice to have, it's not a must have. And so I'm just gonna push this down the road. And I would actually say that's to me in my mind, if I were a venture capitalist, that would be one of the first questions that I would ask a bunch of startups that I was looking to invest in is, look, I understand it's a high wire act, but in the end, if you've got a cybersecurity vulnerability and it could take down the entire operation, then why should anybody invest in that? And I, and I certainly see this anywhere where we've got a lot of these new startup technologies where they're using, for example, GPS, whether we're talking about drones or cars or small sidewalk delivery drones, I, it is so easy to do a GPS spoof on a vehicle, uh, any kind of vehicle. And uh, I would actually tell you that is my number one question when I ask people who are working in these transportation and or delivery spaces, what are you doing about GPS cybersecurity? And they look at me like a deer in the headlights. Uh, uh, what? What? I didn't know. GPS spoofing. What's that? And so I think, oh, my goodness, we are in serious trouble. Uh, you know, so awareness, again, one of these issues. And, you know, I think it, it might be... I. I know that there's a lot of money to be made in cybersecurity, but I also think that universities are really good about providing workspaces and they want to, you know, help do help startups, angel funding, that kind of thing. But I also wish that we would spend more time in thinking about, okay, well, what would angel funding look like just for cybersecurity for startups? Because uh, that actually has dual benefit. Not only does it keep that company safe, but then that in and of itself could be its own product. Absolutely. In fact, uh, it brings to mind uh, one of my prior guests who got funding to start his company, Trisona, and uh, they focus on passwordless authentication. So I think that's a good product or that's a good approach to strive for. There's no perfect approach, but that's definitely something to uh, you know move in that direction. Um, another thought comes to mind as we are having this discussion. Um, you know, we are making progress technologically. You do a lot of work in the field and the area of AI. Um, we are making these fancy cars. Um, these are supposed to self-drive, which is all great. But we also recognize that the more technologically advanced we get, the more vulnerable we become for a variety of reasons, including information security. So that begs the question, or that's, that's something that 
I address in class when I tell students that technology is great, but mindless use of technology is being kind of stupid. Uh, making judicious use of technology, um, and, and that relates to cybersecurity from the standpoint of, yes, I want to run after my strategic goals, but I better be properly anchored because I can't afford to lose my operating engines, my databases, my systems, uh, because if I lose them, then it's a short-term thinking, I might go under. Having that rich perspective where you're growth-driven, you understand what it takes to take the company to the next level, but you also recognize the different pieces of the puzzle that helps anchor the company, and, and one of which is cybersecurity. Providing that kind of holistic education, I think, is where universities come in. You mentioned about companies providing uh, student cybersecurity training, and absolutely, every company has their own customized approach. But I think at the university level, we can offer them a much more comprehensive insight into what it takes to whether you create a company and run it or whether you run it and how the different pieces fit together and how and why it is important to keep cybersecurity as an integral part of, of the overall strategy. I, in fact, uh, suggest or I have said it very you know, emphatically that cybersecurity is a strategic competency. It's a competency that organizations need to develop and master over a period of time if they want to thrive in the years to come. Thoughts, reactions? Yeah, uh, wow. Um, I mean, we are about to go down a rabbit hole you did not want to go down. Uh, and that is because I have a huge beef with the academic world in the way that it thinks about cybersecurity or more broadly, something we call assured autonomy. And so the idea is autonomous systems uh, ha can operate and most do operate in a non-deterministic fashion. And so that opens up a whole new can of worms for cybersecurity. But, and, I, and I'm not just speaking about autonomous systems. I think more broadly, wherever you've got digital systems, Cybersecurity by the academic world, and who am I speaking of? I'm speaking of most of the most of the top tier research universities, top thirty. Most of these organizations treat cybersecurity as a stepchild in the sense that they do not see it as legitimate research, that this is engineering and it's not research. And so we should not teach it as a formalized set of courses. Now, uh, it sounds, you, you many people listening to this be like, what? The academic institutions don't think that cybersecurity is a legitimate field. And I'm here to tell you they don't. Now, that's not true because obviously Duke, it's not true everywhere. Duke has just recently stood up a cybersecurity program, but you know that is the exception rather than the rule. And, and people will say, that's not basic science. What is basic science about cybersecurity? And so this is actually one of the reasons I developed this course in uh, cybersecurity and humans to, so that people could understand do you know what the basic science that we cover in my course is? We start with cognitive science. We embed game theory. We engage, we talk about queuing theory. We talk about systems thinking. 
right? So there are so many core scientific clusters of learning that underpin cybersecurity. And by the way, that was just for one course. If we started talking about what, what would we find in other courses, formal methods and lots more statistical learning. And so there are uh, many, many core scientific areas that are the foundation for cybersecurity. So it is actually really my my criticism, and, and by the way, my criticism is severe because I think that the inability of our nation, uh, our nation's agencies like the National Science Foundation and even other top 30 universities to really grasp this means that this country is in a serious vulnerable position. And if we're not funding the research, then we're not funding the technology and innovation development that needs to happen to put us out in front. We are not out in front in cybersecurity. The U.S. is not the leaders in cybersecurity. The U.S. can be brought to its knees by a bunch of hackers in Nigeria. I mean, that's that's actually, that's how you have to ask yourself, if we're so awesome, why is it that, that someone from a country that is, you know, not nearly as well developed as our country, as our nation, can have so many problems by people where the bar of entry is, is virtually nothing. So I do wish that we would, as a country, and, and in academia, raise the alarm bells that this is these are legitimate areas of study, trying to get more uh, journals stood up in this area and more traditional you know, types of ways that we disseminate research results. One good area is the Department of Defense. Regardless of how you feel about the DOD, the bottom line is they see that it's a problem. And certainly the US government is trying to do more in this space. So the more that we, that government agencies start to embrace and mandate that their efforts funded in the area of cybersecurity, the better we'll be. But I still think we're just missing a core recognition at universities that cybersecurity is not like changing the oil of your car. It is its own science. Absolutely. Wow. Um, I love the fact that you went down that path I could continue in that direction, but I'll keep my reactions and remarks short. Um, like you said, you used the example of cybersecurity to make the point that uh, many might feel that doing research in this area uh, is not considered scientific. And again, I do not want to assume stuff, but uh, to keep it simple, um, Research is about solving problems. And as you try to solve problems, you end up coming up with theories, better understandings, which ultimately, you know, can transcend, transcend and can and enhance your ability to explain multiple phenomena. And talking about the theoretical uh, development that can come from cybersecurity research, you know, the work that I've done so far, I see so many connections uh, because 17 success factors came out in my work when I was trying to identify what it takes to create and sustain a high-performance information security culture. And each of those factors have strong grounding in research, you know, that has been pursued over decades. One of which, of course, is uh, the role of top management. 
So there is a lot of connectivity. Now, I approach research a little differently. I do not do research to inform theory or to enhance theory. I like to do research which I find interesting, which is going to have impact. And then in the process, if I create great theory, that's great. But, uh, but no, I think your points are extremely well made. And talking about the role of government and the private sector, uh, you will remember that we had the, the colonial pipeline breach. And that resulted in some congressional hearings. And uh, the senior executives, the senior leadership of this organization, along with others uh, who are managing uh, the critical infrastructures, they are now being pushed or asked for major disclosure. In other words, provide more transparency that you are doing enough to protect our national assets. And I'm kind of surprised that it took a breach to get there. I would think it is common sense that whether your organization is protecting national assets or any other asset, any other consumer asset, um, you must, must do your due diligence. You must report to the relevant stakeholders. There must be adequate transparency. So I kind of get surprised when I see these, uh, okay, here are the new things we will be doing. And government, private sector, they are separate, but in many ways they need to come together. Similarly, academic organizations, academic disciplines, yes, we have our specializations, but I hope you'll agree that cybersecurity is an example that uh, is a phenomenon that requires cross-disciplinary expertise and involvement. So you shouldn't be leaving anybody outside and say, well, this is the domain for such and such field, and they are the ones who should be doing research in this area. So having that openness to collaboration, to cross-functional involvement, whether it's in practice or in academia, is critical to dealing with problems of this magnitude, where it is just not enough for a specific company or a government to effectively deal with the threat. We need the entire ecosystem, organizationally, uh, across countries to come together and fight the good fight. So that's how cybersecurity kind of brings us together. Just like COVID has proved to us over and over again that whether we like it or not, we are all highly interconnected. If we don't do our part, we are not going to be able to deal with this pandemic effectively Cybersecurity is the same kind of problem. The more interconnected the systems become, while there are definite benefits of that, the more vulnerable we become. And we can't, each one of us has a role to play. If we look the other way, there's gonna be a breach at some level with long-term impact. So that's my little spiel. Uh, you got me going there. Thoughts, reactions? Well, yeah, you know, uh, the Colonial Pipeline, for people in the business, nobody was surprised, yeah. right? It was just a matter of time because companies are extremely slow to change. And, you know, I'm not generally a fan of strong regulation, but when it comes to these safety critical elements of systems, you know, if I told you that you, that we were going to let the FAA 
you know, we were going to take care of the FAA out and let companies do whatever they wanted in terms of safety of airplanes, nobody would get on an airplane, right? And so, you know, this is yet another safety critical system where if we don't take care of some of these, especially for infrastructure uh, and other safety critical systems, process control, for example. So yeah, you know, unfortunately, Henry Petrosky, who's another professor at Duke, he talks about engineering failures, uh, that sometimes engineering failures have to happen because that is the only way that the industry is going to grow. Sadly, I think that applies to this as well, right? And, and like we talked about, it's basically some kind of uh, warped sine curve where we have to keep, it has to keep happening over and over again for us to be reminded that we need to keep doing it. So, you know, that's where I think that's where there is a lot of room to figure out like, all right, then how should we, if we know that there's going to be episodic movements and technologies being developed, and especially now all the vulnerabilities that artificial intelligence introduces, how can we start being proactive instead of being reactive? So that's where I'd like to spend some of my research efforts. Makes total sense. Going back to your core research in safety and automation, as you have pursued research in that area, hopefully you've seen progress. What do you expect to see in the field of cybersecurity in the years to come? And I realize I'm asking you to wear your predictive hat and look ahead and see what's coming. You think uh, we will get a better handle on how to deal with these threats, whether it's through better technology, superior governance, or more effective regulation? Talking about regulation, I'm reminded of the effectiveness of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, SOX, to reduce fraudulent accounting activities. I wonder if we need similar legislation to get organizations and their leadership to comply with cybersecurity best practices. What do you see happening? Yeah, so I kind of think about this as a three-circle Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. There's cybersecurity mitigation, people, technology, and regulation, right? So there's a little bit to be done in all of that. I think regulation certainly needs to be more proactive in that companies and subcontractors who touch safety critical systems, this should just be mandatory. And there, you know, there is movement along this front, but, you know, I, I've been working in and around the government for the last, you know, 10 years. And so I've seen the big gaping holes. There's not one department in the government that I think has a good cybersecurity strategy. And by good, I mean, they know that they need help, but they just don't have all the right people that they need to make these programs safe. I mean, when we've got the National Security Agency being hacked, you know, we got serious problems, right? So, uh, so I think that there's a lot to be done on the regulatory front because unfortunately in this space, companies, not all companies, but a lot of companies are not going to get at least good enough cybersecurity practices unless you force their hand. Um, but I would actually say of, the, of those three Venn diagrams, that's the smallest. So I think we should spend a lot more time in technology developments. You know, the fact of the matter is we should be able to stop phishing emails. Like that there's no, there's no magic 
solution. There's, it's not like we got to solve cold fusion to figure that out. We've got some filtering technologies and some search technologies and some ID technologies, um, maybe even figuring out how to run ghost servers so that these problems don't happen. But, you know, we, I think that that just, and this is where research is needed. Like, how can we actually develop more efficient programs and another technology, for example, that we need help on. Look, VPNs are like, you know, it's like trying to add a big analog system to your fast digital system. It just slows it down and people get so mad at VPNs. And I know people from all sorts of companies who will bypass the VPN just for this one thing, right? And then that's where they get compromised in some cybersecurity. So, you know, we should be able to solve that problem. VPNs don't have to slow technology down. So let's, let's improve that. So, you know, I think there's a lot more to be done on the technology front. I think there's a lot more to be done on the human front. I do wonder if companies ever sit back and say, why is it that we are so vulnerable to the time of COVID because people are lonely and bored and the quality of work is not meaningful, right? So I think there's a lot for companies to do to think about how can we make our work processes and environments such that hacking is not successful and how can we make everyone an, at least participatory in trying to stop hacking and mitigation and make that a more uh, integral part of our everyday work processes instead of everybody eye rolling every time they have to go take a online cybersecurity training that no one's listening to and they're doing something else. They're like cooking or doing their taxes or doing something while theoretically the online training is happening. So, um, you know, I think, I think, there's a lot to be done. I think we are getting better. I don't mean to be the Debbie Downer uh, in saying it's all miserable because obviously we are making improvements. But I think that the number one change that needs to happen for government and for industry and for academia is to recognize it's kind of like COVID. Look, this is here to stay. And the longer that you keep ignoring it, the worse it's going to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to go back to your class, uh, the classes on human factors. Uh, and I'd like you to share with listeners, what are you trying to instill in students who take your class? I would say the number one consideration that I want my students to leave with after they take my class, the human element in cybersecurity is that cybersecurity is a systems level problem that there is no one, you know, just stopping phishing is not going to stop cybersecurity. And that to take, to address it properly, you need to think about it first from a requirements perspective. What does my company need? How does it need? Why does it need? When does it need? Are, what facets of the company need? What various mitigations? And then integrate the cybersecurity aspect at all levels of product development and understand that it's integral, not an add-on harassment package that higher level management is imbuing upon the rest of the company. So yeah, systems level thinking, cybersecurity, to me, they're one and the same. Okay, fantastic. Now, um, I'd like to go back to something you talked about 
relating to senior management, top management, because you'd appreciate that at the end of the day in a in an organization, uh, the the tone is set at the top. Um, top management really has to make the commitment. They have to believe in it and do the needful. Um, and you mentioned that based on your field work, you found uh, significant variance in that. If I don't mean, mean to misquote you, so correct me. But uh, I'd like your thoughts and perspective on besides regulation, what should it take to get top management to actively recognize this to be a, a key issue that's something that you can't walk away from and meet it head on and get the organization prepared to proactively deal with this challenge? Well, if, reg if the regulatory lever is not going to be pulled, I think the next regulatory or the next internal regulation lever that should be pulled is probably a mandate from a board, for example, if it's a publicly traded company or, or if it's a non-public company, if they have a board, you have to have some kind of external lever of accountability. Because if you don't have that, you know, it depends. The, the companies who are successful in fending off hacking attempts are those that have good people that understand and are taking care of that and, the, and that the CEO uh, is for, has, first of all, hired those people and given them the latitude that they need to solve those problems. Unless the CEO, I, I, I really think cybersecurity is a leadership issue because unless the CEO values it and demonstrates to the rest of the company that they value it, then everybody else is just going to follow the lead and be very haphazard. And so, you know, the resources have to be set aside and it needs to be transparent and visible to the rest of the company that these things are valued instead of, I see, I would say for the bulk of companies out there, the CEOs just give lip service to cybersecurity and say, yes, and you know, maybe we've got McAfee and that's what we're doing. Unfortunately, that's not enough. And, you know, or maybe we force people to do some really cheap online training that people are not listening to while they're doing many other tasks. Uh, and so, you know, taking it seriously and instead of eye rolling and saying, well, this is just something I have to do instead of not something that I should do. I think that's the real problem. Fantastic. Well, that was terrific. Uh, Missy, any final thoughts as we wrap up our discussion today? Leadership starts, starts with the man or woman at the top. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to future discussions on this topic. It was really fun. Hope you had a good time. It was great. A special thanks to Professor Missy Cummings for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis, with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. 
The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.